Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode 19 of Unknown Orbits, Crashing Suns by Edmund Hamilton. I'm Patrick Baird. And I'm Steve Reitze. Today we're going to be talking about what is widely considered to be one of the earliest forms of space opera in science fiction, Crashing Suns by Edmund Hamilton. It was published in Weird Tales magazine in the August to September issues in 1928. It was published at the same time as The Skylark of Space, which was serialized in Amazing Stories in August to October of 1928 as well. So this was the period that many critics, many historians point to saying when space opera really was born. So for the story uh, of Crashing Suns, Scientists discover a rogue star is headed right for our solar system. So they send out the latest, fastest new rocket ship out to investigate. The pilot, the hero of the story, discovers that the sun is being directed to Earth by globe-like aliens. That's aliens that look like basketballs with arms and legs, living on a planet rotating around the star. The aliens apparently hope that their dying red dwarf star, by merging with the sun, will be re-energized. But of course, that process will destroy all human life throughout the solar system, which in this story, all of the planets of the solar system have been colonized by mankind. Earth responds by building a fleet of space cruisers to confront and defeat the approaching aliens. An epic battle ensues in the space above the enemy planet. Earth prevails, and its scientists are able to divert the red star away from our sun. My impression of it, it seems very derivative of Edgar Rice Burroughs. Now, Edgar Rice Burroughs did not write many space adventures. He had adventures set on planets. He had series set on Venus, series set on the moon, series set on Mars. Uh, there was another one, I forget the name of it, that takes place on a further planet in another system. But all of his stories were planetary romance, which is basically an action-adventure science fiction story that takes place on one planet. The reason I found this to be very derivative of Edgar Rice Burroughs is it had these certain elements that were absolutely 100% very Edgar Rice Burroughs. Like the names of the characters in the book are very short, you know, odd-sounding names like Jan Tor, Hal Kerr. They're all hyphenated. That's just like number eight on my list. Right. That's totally something he took directly from Edgar Rice Burroughs. There's the capture and escape motif that was in almost every Edgar Rice Burroughs adventure where the hero at some point or another gets captured by the bad guys and he has to escape and fights his way out and you know learns important information while he's a prisoner. This had that. It had that element in it. So it was not a revolutionary story in any regard. And I think Steve's probably going to have an opinion or two on this, but the science was terrible. And it's 1928, so I don't know if that's forgivable in the era, but the science was just 100% just pure nonsense. This was typical of the early stories that Edmund Hamilton did. I read a couple stories in the volume Crashing Suns 
it was a part of the series called the Intergalactic Patrol. They were this quasi-military unit that went around saving the Earth system and so forth all around the galaxy. And they were stories about our hero standing up to invading moon men, spider men, turtle men, frog men, etc. And that went on to become a very common motif in the pulpier science fiction of the 1930s, the action hero fighting against weird mutant alien races. So it was very much a template creator to some degree, a template that was based, in my opinion, on the earlier work of Edgar Rice Burroughs. But instead of being a planetary romance where it all takes place on one planet, it takes place out in outer space. What did you think of it? Okay, I think it's fair to say I hated it. (laughs) If you don't mind, I'd like to shout at clouds now. Oh, please. So there was no science in this. At one point, he lists the four gas giants at the edge of the solar system. That's the only thing he got right. (laughs) The order of the planets. Yes. Okay. So now it's a little difficult to say, okay, a science fiction story was wrong, but There are facts that are known at the time that's written that they should get correct. And there's internal logic that should be consistent. And he's all over the place. I'll try not to rant too much because I have some serious points to make. But there's two kinds of drives in the story. The new drive interacts with the ether, which I looked it up and it had been disproven like 40 years before the story was written. Right. He's surfing the space by catching on to etheric waves. Yeah, it was a ridiculous idea in 1928, and it was not based on science at all, but it was published in Weird Tales. So I don't know if that was a contributing factor. You know, Gernsbach at the time, his magazines maybe would have had a barrier to something lacking in science to this degree. But they did publish Skylark of Space, which I haven't read and I'm not intimately familiar with, and I'm not sure how sound their science was either. But yeah, the science is just non-existent as far as I'm concerned in this story. The whole idea of two suns crashing into one another and one of them consuming the other sun and becoming a bigger sun is silly beyond belief. Also, I couldn't get over that these suns crashing together would destroy all of our planets, but be good for their planet. Yeah, their planet would be fine. Yeah. I don't understand how that works out. I have a math quibble. At one point, they are out at Neptune, and they slow down to a million miles an hour. Oh, yeah. To come back to Earth, which you look it up, and that takes three and three quarters months. And at one point, there was a reference to going 80 times the speed of light. 80 times the speed of light. Good grief. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, how long would it take to go from one end of the solar system to the other, traveling at 80 times the speed of light? That's... Like five minutes, I think. (laughs) It's really insane. And I think when he first wrote it, he had like 20 times the speed of light. And either he or his editor said, ah, make it it more exciting, Uh, 80 times the speed of light. You know, I mean, it was ridiculous. It just, it was so bad that it just really interfered with trying to enjoy the story. He did not know what the word universe meant. Throughout the entire story, just one exception for unknown reasons, he uses the word universe to mean solar system. Yeah, that's, yeah. And it's really not forgivable because he travels outside of the solar system. They have to travel through empty space, basically, to get to the other solar system where the bad guys are. So that's just not a forgivable sin, really. And the plot itself was a very straight line travelogue plot. The only complication 
was when the scientist who invented a new ship, the hyphenated name guy, he, well, okay, so Sirhan Sirhan decides to allow himself to look like a coward so that he could end up coming in at the last minute and being the deus ex machina. Yes, yes. So let's talk a little bit about Edmund Hamilton. Now, Edmund Hamilton was an extremely successful writer. He was voted at one point the most popular writer in Weird Tales magazine. That was over people like H.P. Lovecraft, Robert E. Hauer, Clark Ashton Smith. So he was tremendously, in his niche in Weird Tales magazine, he was tremendously successful. He was very prolific. He wrote a lot of horror, a lot of science fiction, but he also wrote mystery and crime. He was sort of a Doogie Hauser character. He entered Westminster College at age 14, but dropped out at age 17 because he didn't fit in socially. He was too young. He was in there with much older people and lost interest, felt alienated, and he just dropped out of college at age 17. So he never finished up his degree. He published his first story, The Monster God of Marmuth, in Weird Tales 1926, just months after Amazing Stories first appeared, Kernsbach's Pioneering Magazine. One of the things I find very interesting about him is he married the writer Leigh Brackett. Now, Leigh Brackett was a successful science fiction and fantasy writer in her own right. She actually wrote the initial draft screenplay for Return of the Jedi, the third Star Wars movie. Oh, wait a minute. I read about her. She was just getting into science fiction where at a vital point she got some unfair criticism and then she moved into writing other things instead. That may be. I'm not intimately familiar with Leigh Brackett's career. Maybe we'll visit her at some point in the future. But it sounds to me that before he met her, he was kind of a wild bachelor. He and his, one of his science fiction writer friends took these trips and just had like debauched adventures together. And it was after that, somebody actually introduced him to Leigh Brackett. And it was a couple years courtship and they wound up getting married and they stayed married all their life. He also in the late 1940s, wrote the series Captain Future, which was very popular. It was a fiction, and then I think they may have made it into a comic book. It was a very popular series for many years. And if that wasn't enough, he also wrote for DC Comics for many years. The 1940s, 1950s era, Batman and Superman. He wrote the Batman story, The Cape and Cowl Crooks, which features that meme-famous panel of Batman slapping Robin. <laughs> so anybody who's seen that meme, he wrote that comic book story that featured that famous image. So like I said, he was very prolific. He was a popular writer throughout most of his career. He did a lot of different types of things. So it's hard for me to feel too antagonistic against him based on this story that both Steve and I were not terribly impressed by. But I do, I do admire any writer who has that level of success during that period. Because to be that prolific at a time when you could make a living as a writer by being very prolific, I admire that. I had another impression about the story, which I think goes along with his career. We have talked before about taking story forms from one area and applying them to another. I'm convinced that this story was based on a swashbuckling pirate adventure. Like the Raphael Sabatini stories. I don't know if you ever read any of those. I did when I was a teenager. I loved them. Captain Blood, all of those great pirate adventures, which were very, very popular in the 1920s. 
I have not, but I've seen some movies, and just the plot of going out on your ship, stumbling across the island of pirates, getting captured, escaping, coming back, and then having a running battle with them, that's a pirate adventure. You're right. That's very astute. I completely agree with you. And that, that, so I'm not saying that Edgar Rice Burroughs invented the formula of the escape and capture and having to travel across a huge distance to find his lost love or recover the missing item or stop the enemy plot. Like I said, Raphael Sabatini, which I think is still pretty readable these days. You're talking about Captain Blood, Scaramouche, a whole bunch of very famous movies that were adapted into movies with Errol Flynn and Tyrone Power and all those Golden Age Hollywood swashbuckling type heroes. So I'm guessing that since they were popular in book form in the 20s, that's why we have so many movies in the 30s. Absolutely. And there were pirate pulp magazines in the 1930s, pirate stories. I didn't know that. Several. Robert E. Howard, the author of Conan, wrote some pirate stories in the 1930s. That was the wonderful thing about the pulps in the 1930s. So many genres, pirate stories, not only westerns, but like spicy westerns. There was a whole line of spicy magazines, which were basically sex, smutty versions, as smutty as you could be in the 1930s. You had boxing. We've talked about that before. Boxing stories. Magazines were completely devoted to boxing stories. Orientalism. There was like stories that were all about Oriental adventures. Planes. Air stories. There's magazines that are all about air adventures. You know, I think I do remember reading the creation of Amazing was driven by the fact that they had something like 18 different genre magazines. And when they printed the covers, they had blank spaces for two more. So they said, oh, we'll, we'll do science fiction. I don't know if that was amazing because it was a different format when they first started out. I believe the original Amazing was in a larger format than the standard pulp. And that was one of the things that changed in the 1920s is they came up with this smaller, what we think of as standard magazine style format now, that was smaller and cheaper to print. That was one of the things that helped make the pulps explode in the 1930s was the advent of this smaller, cheaper size. And that meant that companies could afford to put out 10, 15 different titles. They could have a separate pirate magazine because they didn't need to have 300,000 readers for that to be successful. They could get by with 100,000 readers or less. I think there's a lot of fiction that was written in the early part of the 20th century that the pulps drew off of, you know, there was all these early, like Dashiell Hammett, pioneering crime writers. So there is that pattern of literary success leading to a popularization through the pulps. And it was for people who are not, let's say people who are not the best readers. They were not as literate. And maybe reading a, a novel might have been a little bit of a challenge. But reading a pulp magazine with shorter stories and they're written in a plainer, simpler style with more action, little sex maybe, yeah, that would have made them more popular. And let's not forget, if you wanted entertainment in the 30s, you didn't have a lot of choices. Radio at the time was a lot like network TV would be later on. And if you like pirate stories, you could only get them by buying a magazine. It's kind of like TV today. I grew up, my mom loved doctor shows and cop shows. And what do you have on TV today? Doctor shows and cop shows. That was radio. So you had doctor shows back in the 1930s. Soap operas. So speaking of soap operas, 
let's discuss what is space opera. May I start out with a Please. lovely bit of trivia? Okay, uh, let's hear your definition of space opera. I'll get to that. I'm just dying to tell you this. So, space opera was a term coined by Wilson Tucker. Wilson Tucker was kind of an uneven science fiction writer. His best was probably Long Loud Silence, in which the United States is attacked, everything east of the Mississippi is contaminated and destroyed, and there's a, what do they call it? It's a French term, uh, cordon de sanitaire. No idea. So the Mississippi River becomes walled off from the surviving western half of the United States. And the whole book takes place with one of the survivors, a military man in the east. And probably I'm saying too much. The whole point is, that's his top book. And I had a copy of the paperback. And I took it to Excon in Milwaukee in 1990 to have him autograph it. Now, why do you think I did that? Because you liked the story? He and my mother dated. Oh, that's some good trivia. That's the Milwaukee connection. All kinds of great writers came out of Milwaukee, and even not so great writers. We're fertile ground for writing. So my definition of space opera, in researching this and having read other things for other podcasts, there are a hundred different definitions of space opera, and some of them are just 100% wrong. There are some things that people say are space opera that clearly are not. My favorite one is people say that Star Trek, at least the original series, was space opera, and it is not. No, it's not. No. So let me, let me give you my definition. To me, it's very simple. Space opera is action, adventure, science fiction that takes place in outer space and usually features a sweeping galactic background. That's it. And I think just because something takes place in space and has a sweeping background does not make it space opera if it's not action-adventure. Right. Absolutely. My definition is incorporated in yours. Space opera is a swashbuckling adventure. You got to have that action. What does swashbuckling mean? Anyway, you got to well, swash your buckles. Swashbuckling basically means that there's a lot of fights, usually sword fights. And some space opera does have sword fights in space. Which, as a writer, I've thought about that. I have a potential series that I'm contemplating. And the idea of fighting with swords in space is not as crazy as you think. Because if you're inside of a pressurized ship where putting a hole in the side of the ship is a bad thing, going around shooting each other with pistols is not a good idea. But killing each other with axes and swords does make a certain amount of sense. I tried to write a steampunk science fiction adventure on the moon. And to solve that problem, I came up with frangible ammunition. Yeah. Compressed powder, which would kill a human, but if it hits anything as hard as a window, it would just shatter. Yeah. In my story, The Nowhere Navy, that I'm currently working on, people are armed with plasma rifles and plasma sidearms, which fires a bolt of energy that at short range is enough to kill somebody. But if it hits a bulkhead, it's not going to put a hole in the ship. So, yeah, if you're going to write action-adventure in space, you have to have that factor where you cannot have people firing guns that shoot bullets or grenades or whatever that could potentially blow a hole in the ship and really ruin your day. Now, what you said about the swords in space yes. makes me think of something that is outside of our range. Go ahead. Is Star Wars space opera? Star Wars is intrinsically 
space opera. I cannot think of a better example of something that is space opera. Good. The, Star Wars is totally space opera. And what do they have? They have sword fights. They had lightsabers right there. That's swashbuckling. They're swashbuckling with their lightsabers, fighting each other on spaceships, and on planets and stuff. It has a sweeping galactic background. It is 100% action adventure. So, yes, Star Wars, space opera, Star Trek, not space opera. Star Trek is not space opera because, at least in the original series, and I think the next generation, it's a show that is character-driven and often does what a lot of good science fiction does, which is pose a question or touch on an idea. Think of all of the idea-based shows in the original series, like how do you handle a being who has superpowers? Yeah. How do you manage them humanely? The racism episode with the people with the black face on one side and the white face on the other side, and that was a racism parable. There were a handful of Star Trek episodes that were kind of space opera. Like when they first met the Romulans, it was basically a submarine movie. So that really isn't space opera, but it kind of fits the template of space opera. Which is not surprising because it was an anthology series. Right. So yeah, they had a few that bordered on space opera, but the majority of that series was regular science fiction that had some action elements to it. But to me, it was not space opera. So that, that term is widely abused, I think. Yeah. So let's look at some of the elements of space opera. This is a criticism of space opera that the science is usually bogus. I was going to say the science is given short shrift in order to get it over with and into the situation. Right, because you have action adventure. The plot has to move forward quickly. Now, it doesn't have to be. I have not read some of this, these series, but there are some newer series where the science is paid attention to, where it has better science. A great example of this would be the Expanse series. Yeah. I love the TV show and I love the books. That has pretty sound science in it, but it's also action adventure oriented. It takes place in space for the most part. It's got a sweeping scale, so it fits the definition of space opera. So it is possible to write a space opera story with good science. Certainly, it's not inherently necessary to have bad science in space opera. But I think a lot of it, because it's being written as action-adventure, at least in the past, kind of discarded science as being secondary to the plot. And in defense, I am going to bring up this point. So as I'm writing The Nowhere Navy, one of the things I had to confront is what kind of propulsion system is going to be used in my universe? Let's look at this current state right now. Ion and fission electric propulsion drives are not only feasible, we've actually started using ion drives. Some unmanned spacecraft have been equipped with ion drives. So that's actually a functioning current technology. Now, Albuquerque drive, I think it's pronounced correctly, the Albuquerque drive. I believe that's really controversial. Right. And it's highly theoretical because, for one thing, it depends on exotic matter that may or may not even exist. I'm sorry, I was thinking of the microwave cavity drive. I thought that was Albuquerque. I think Albuquerque is basically That's the a nuclear... warping space? Yes, it's a way to bend space. So, I mean, that one is theoretically feasible, but like you said, controversial, and it depends on a lot on things like having exotic matter, which may or may not exist. A good example of a past technology that was widely used in science fiction is the spin-dizzy or the Blackett effect. Oh, was that the Cities in Flight series? That's the Cities in Flight used that. That was something that in the 1950s had some degree of scientific plausibility behind it. But it has since then been 
pretty thoroughly debunked. Now, I've never thought about it, but are you talking about the Dean drive that yes. Campbell pushed? Yeah. Yes. Okay. But at the time these writers were using this, it was still potentially feasible. Now, I think that some of it had already been debunked at that point, but it was really debunked after that. So as a writer, you're kind of stuck. You're like, okay, I'm not a physicist. I'm a writer. I have a degree in mass communication. I have to pick something and I'm going to just pick whatever works for my story. And whether or not it's ever going to pan out to be true, I don't care. That's one way I would defend writers of space opera not having really great science is that even if they really wanted to, 40 years after they write that story, whatever they used in that story might be bad science. I'd like to point out that what he used in this story is something we haven't heard of in years, gravity screens. Now, I don't know who invented the concept, but it was used by more than one writer. The idea was, and this is kind of a creative solution, the idea is, is somehow we have a way of screening off gravity. So when you have a ship, you put screens all around the entire ship except for the spot which is like where Jupiter is dead ahead. So the only gravity in the solar system that's acting on you is Jupiter. So you screen yourself off and you fall towards Jupiter until you want to make a turn. Then you screen off Jupiter and you unscreen Mars or something. And that's the basis of the initial drives in this story. Unfortunately, when you really start to think about it, it wouldn't work because the amount of pull you get from like Jupiter to here is so small, it would just take forever for you to get anywhere. Yeah, you're not going to go 80 times the speed of light with something like that. Right. And that's the internal logic that just fails in a story like Crashing Suns. So I think the other thing about space opera is it was greatly responsible for popularizing science fiction. And we've already talked about this in the past, about Buck Rogers and how important Buck Rogers was in popularizing science fiction in the 1930s. All of those magazines that writers you know, later on sneered at and turned their nose down at and criticized in the 1930s that were filled with moon men and bug-eyed monsters and women with their clothes half torn off, our valiant hero with his laser pistol or even a sword fighting off one of these monsters. All of that space opera that was published in the 1930s helped popularize science fiction, helped establish it as a durable genre. Especially by crossing over into other media. Yes, you know, when comic books came out, you had space opera-based comic books. You had serials with Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers, the pulps. You had a, a wide market throughout the 1930s, 1940s, and into the 1950s for, for space opera. And every generation that came up was weaned on space opera. You talk to guys like Isaac Asimov. He'll tell you. He read those pulpy space operas when he was 10 years old or whatever. And working in the shop, putting out the magazines. Right. Well, well, no, he had... Candy store. Yeah, candy store. His dad's candy store, which I imagine may have had a rack or two of pulp magazines sitting there that while he was sitting there behind a the counter could grab one and, you know, read in between customers. So to make another pitch for space opera, I'd like to point out a list of just some of the highly esteemed science fiction writers who wrote space opera. Now, we've already mentioned Leigh Brackett. She certainly wrote her share of it. Jack Vance, one of my favorite writers. Michael Moorcock, another favorite writer of mine. Paul Anderson, Samuel R. Delaney, Ben Bova, Gordon R. Dixon. So you had highly regarded science fiction writers 
throughout the 1950s, the 1960s, and even into the 1970s who were writing space opera. And that, to me, is an indication that it's not limited to the worst of the pulps, you know, in the golden age of science fiction. That is, it is a a subgenre within science fiction that I think is perfectly valid to this day. And I said, I'm aware of some of these modern space operas that appear to be well-written and more interesting and more character-based and have better science. Someday I'll get around to those after I've finished reading the 80 books that I need to read for this podcast. So it shouldn't be treated dismissively, in my opinion. Harry Harrison wrote a parody of space opera called Build the Galactic Hero, You don't parody something that doesn't have significance. True. And to be honest, if you're talking about the early space opera, it was eminently parodable. Yeah. That's kind of punching down a little bit, I think. Yeah, that's that's true. So I'm going to put out one example of what I consider to be bad space opera, and which is widely, widely, widely considered to be space opera. And that's Isaac Asimov's Foundation series. Okay, you're going to hate me. I still have not even read it. Well, I have. I've read at least the first two books. Yes, it is sort of action-adventure. It has a sweeping epic scale. It takes place a lot in space. But one of the things that just I marveled at, there is one point where a hugely important battle takes place in space, which changes the history of the Galactic Empire. And... Asimov doesn't write the battle. He has a bunch of people sitting around talking about the battle, saying, so what about that big space battle? Oh, yeah, that was something else, wasn't it? That tells you he couldn't write a space battle. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, come on. I understand its significance, but looked at purely as a literary endeavor, it does not deserve the high level of praise that it gets because it's filled with stuff like that. And the characters are a little bit wooden, which is, I think is common with Asimov. Yeah. We will definitely get to that in some future episodes, but that's bad space opera. If you're going to have like a major battle that changes the course of history and you don't even describe it, you have it relayed to the reader's second hand. That's terrible. I can just see him. He's got half the story on the left side of his typewriter. He's got the ending of the story on the right side of his typewriter, and he's staring at a blank page saying, how do I join these two? (laughs) He freezes up because the idea of having to describe propulsion devices and, and how to do a battle, and he just can't do it. That was another thing. In this story, Crashing Suns, they have a space battle. That was the one part of the story that was kind of fun. That wasn't too bad. That's the part that convinced me it was a pirate story. In a pirate story, it's reasonable to have the level of detail of the cannonball went here, hit that, pulled down the thing, the the jib sail fell, and all this and that. But in a space opera, he just had this long, boring list of, well, they turn left, and then we turn right, and then we flipped over, and then we turned on the thing. Yeah. And he didn't know how to summarize the space battle. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I'm learning with the Nowhere Navy is that you've got to finesse your battle scenes because it requires pacing. It needs to be fast-paced and exciting, but you need to have a rhythm to it that isn't rushing to the conclusion. You want to draw out the battle my battles at the end of Nowhere Navy span, at this point, five chapters. What I do is I jump around, I change 
viewpoints between different characters in the middle of the battle. Are you doing the like a submarine battle? Well, yes and no. I will say this, that the Nowhere Navy was heavily influenced by classic World War II submarine movies. So it has that element to it. So part of that battle is very much a submarine movie where you're trying to find the enemy and it's you're not sure exactly where the enemy is, which adds a nice layer of suspense, as any successful submarine movie will demonstrate. But you can't just go bang, 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 bang when you're doing a space battle. You've got to spread it out among multiple characters, I think. And that's where I think multiple viewpoint is a really good way to do a space battle because you're getting different views of the same thing. And, you know, you've got multiple participants in the battle. So you want to see what happens with them. There is an art to writing an exciting and entertaining space battle, which is what I'm learning right now by writing this book. And I hope that I'm successful and I hope that I can continue the series. I've already got a sequel idea lined up for the Nowhere Navy if it's successful. I'm a strong proponent of rhythm in a story. Yeah. I tend to lean towards highly interactive, complex situations, which really require getting that rhythm right. Right. And the rhythm is a combination of short description, like when you're doing an action scene, you have, you know, and then the missile hit and they all exploded. That's a piece of action. Many times that's written in a short sentence for effect. But then in the middle of all of that, you get inside the character's head. So you have interior dialogue happening. You have a lot of information coming from multiple sources, and you're balancing how much information comes from this character and how it's woven in with the information you're getting from another source. Yeah, and all of this, the dialogue, the interior monologue, the information coming in from various sources on what's actually happening, that all has to be woven together in rhythm, as we said, but also to build knowledge for the reader to anticipate what might be happening, to give them maybe a false lead every now and then to make them think something's going to happen and then something else happens. It's like writing a symphony, I guess, where you have all these different instruments come into play. You have rhythm tracks, you have solos, you have harmony. All of those elements have to be woven together to a cohesive whole. If you watch Back to the Future 3, from the point where the third presto log that he's using in the locomotive explodes, there's an incredible amount of information in 30 seconds. Tons and tons of information that you need to know all in a very digestible form. So that, that would be like my apex example. As long as we're going into the 90s, the first 10 minutes of Armageddon. To me, that's a masterpiece of exposition. Because you get so much information about the situation and all the main characters in 10 minutes, done as economically and efficiently as possible. And that's skill. That's a real skill. But on the other hand, as we say that, I'm arguing in favor as a writer when you're writing an action scene to, I don't want to say take your time, but to create a rhythm that isn't all forward momentum. It's okay to pause in the middle of a battle for whatever reason. And I think that helps the reader a little bit. Your pauses can't be too long. Your digressions can't be too big. But I think it makes for a better reading experience if you have a rhythm that is moving forward rapidly, but not too rapidly. Well, like resting points to give the people a chance to digest what they Yes. Yeah, absolutely. To me, that's a good element of space opera. I'm learning that currently. 
I wouldn't call my Nowhere Navy novel space opera. It fits many of the requirements of space opera, but it's really more military science fiction. But you could call it space opera, and I wouldn't complain. Hopefully when that comes out in a few months, I'll get that kind of feedback from readers, what they consider it to be, what they liked about it or didn't like. As far as discussing space opera, what it is, what it isn't, do you have any other thoughts? No, I think I've covered everything. Yeah, me too. So that's it for episode 19. Please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird. And I'm Steve Reitzey. Keep watching the sky. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee.